Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Thank you, choir, band, orchestra, Robert, of course, and Michelle. It was a beautiful offering and affirmation of Jesus and his majesty, the King of Kings. And that song that we sang about 15 minutes ago, We Are Here For You, we're here for him today. Let's review for just a couple of moments. In this season, it seemed right to me before the Lord as I prayed about what would happen in this interim time as far as I'm concerned, that we would reconsider a foundation for why the church exists. These are the reasons. This ultimately is why we gather. It's why we deploy to do ministry in the world. It's, it's how individually and then corporately we function together for, for purpose. So I started with worship two weeks ago, and I use a definition that really is a descriptor of worship in the Scripture, in, in God's Word. And the simple definition is worship is placing the mind's attention and the heart's affection on God and responding to him for who he is and what he's done. Worship obviously is woven throughout all of God's word, but one of the verses we looked at two weeks ago was uh, Romans 12, actually 12, 1 and 2, that tells us to present ourselves as a living offering, uh, living sacrifice before the Lord, which is our reasonable or spiritual act of worship or service. It's a response that we would give ourselves to the Lord daily in a sense of uh, coming before him, dying to ourselves, and living to him. And that in itself is an act of worship. And worship certainly is exalting something. It's, it's placing something above us, something that we would add great value to. In the simplest of terms, worship is certainly doing that with a focus on Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Last week, we talked about evangelism. And the simplest explanation of what we talked about last week was Luke 9. Man was blind. Jesus healed him. His testimony was, I was blind. I met Jesus and now I see. And the simplest outline for sharing your faith, for me sharing mine, is this. This was my life before Christ. This is how I came to Christ. And this has been my life since Christ. And though I didn't say it verbatim last week, you don't have to have a flashy testimony. Uh, You don't have to have uh, some sort of major drama in your life. You don't have to be an adult who's had uh, a journey of, of being agnostic or atheist or shaking your fist in the face of God. And then you had a Damascus Road experience. Ideally, honestly... Um, maybe you were five years old or seven years old or eight years old and in a vacation Bible school moment or in a wonderful way praying with a mother or a father, you came to receive Christ. So it's life before, which is without life. It's dead in our sins and trespasses. It's coming to Christ. And then it's living with him and growing with him as he, by the work of his spirit, conforms us to the image of Christ. Today I want to talk about discipleship. Dr. Robert Mullins is the pastor of Crossroads Church. This church is just north of Wetumpka, Alabama in the Montgomery area. 
and it has been renamed. It was everything that a country church of some size looks like. It was a rambling uh, red brick building that had obviously been added on to three or four times over the last 70 years or so. Robert's been there about 10 years. When Robert, who is now 53, was in the eighth grade, he was one of the kids in my youth group. I was his student pastor, his youth pastor for eight years. So he was in the eighth grade, and I was at that church almost 10 years. So I literally saw him all the way through college and his two brothers. Robert has a master's of divinity. Robert has a doctorate of ministries. And um, Robert became very convicted years ago that there was not discipleship in a systematic way that presented the truth of God's word and taught others how to obey the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Robert had had that experience. We tried to be very intentional in Robert's early days. Uh, In the mid-80s, Robert walked through a process with me called Master Life. And some of you who are of a certain age in the room may remember Master Life. Baptist put together a 26-week study. So it was a couple of burgundy notebooks and uh, small binders, and you would walk through a weekly presentation, scripture memory. You would understand the nature of the church and God's word and memorizing scripture and how to share your faith and how to be deployed into service and ministry. It was an incredible tool. It's just a tool. But we used master life in Robert's life. Well, as the years went by and Robert's seminary training caught up with his experience, he realized with his pastor friends that the vast majority of pastors had never been discipled intentionally. Now, they'd been to class and they loved Jesus and there's no minimizing who they were or their call or in many ways their effectiveness. But Robert, in asking, discovered that most pastors had never been intentionally discipled. So Robert began about 10 years ago now Uh, finding groups of pastors, talking to them about the intentionality of having a relationship where someone teaches you to observe. I'm referencing Matthew 28 now, the Great Commission, where someone teaches you to observe all that Jesus taught us. Somebody who would bring accountability and encouragement and wisdom and uh, bring some life to a, a relationship of growth for a disciple. So Robert found pastors 10 years ago, and he continues to this day. Robert in Alabama has become the go-to pastor for discipleship. So he put together uh, Zoom and FaceTime meetings with pastors who weren't present in his community. And over the last 10 years, Robert has personally, one-on-one or with a group, and we'll talk about some strategies in a minute, discipled dozens and dozens of pastors With the intent, and East Haven hear this, with the intent that a disciple would be someone who would disciple others. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So there has been a groundswell of ministry in the state of Alabama, particularly among Baptist churches, of pastors who have caught the vision, if you will, of discipling others with a heart for making more disciples. It's not multi-level marketing. Well, yes, it is, actually. That's exactly what it is. It's multi-level in that one life impacts another for the purpose of impacting another. It is disciples 
who make disciples. Well, what is a disciple? Uh, A disciple is somebody who is a pupil or a follower of a teacher or or a school. And we use the word sometimes in a number of different disciplines. So if you were a psychoanalyst, you might be a disciple of Freud because you're a part of the school of thought of that kind of Freudian psychoanalysis. That might be the school of thought. If you were a socialist, you would be a disciple in a sense of of Marx and socialism. Or if you're a... uh, trickle-down, kind of supply-side economist, you might be a disciple of, of many economists, but you might call yourself sort of a disciple in the school of Ronald Reagan. We think about disciples as people who carry the, the values and, and the structures, the construction of truth or understanding or information. We carry those from somebody else, a pupil of a particular teacher or a school. A disciple, at the end of the day, really is a follower. And Jesus was clear about what it meant to follow, about what it meant to be a disciple. If you have your Bible this morning, I'm going to ask you to join me in Luke, the ninth chapter. We're going to take a little discipleship tour for just a moment. Jesus was calling people to follow him. He was challenging people to believe, and their belief would turn into a following of him as the Messiah. Now, just to be historically accurate and clear, folks, Jesus wasn't the only rabbi, the only teacher who had disciples. It was a common practice at this time, and in some circles still is, for a teacher or a rabbi to have those who would walk in his dust who would live their life around him to capture what this rabbi, this teacher would know. So in the sense that Jesus was calling people to be disciples, it wasn't strictly speaking unique. Now, it was unique because it was Jesus, but it was a structure. It was, a, it was an idea that was fairly common. Jesus calls people to follow him. Now, we know the 12 disciples. Many of us could name them. Uh, Out of the 12, there were three in particular that sort of elevate as people that Jesus was closest to in the sense of the 12 disciples, excluding his mother and others who he had relationship with as well. So Peter, James, John, maybe the inside of the twelve. Jesus has much to say about what it means to follow him. He's announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. He is talking about a time when worshipers would worship in spirit and in truth. He gives pictures of what he's here to do and what his time is about. And then in this passage, and I'm just going to, with great reverence for God's word, lift this verse out. You know it. Uh, Luke 9, 23 Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So the call to discipleship, as evidenced in Luke 9.23, is a daily call to deny oneself and take up one's cross. Verse 24 says this, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. It's that great conundrum, that, that 
complex statement that causes us to wonder, well, how exactly does that work where to gain my life, I have to lose my life? How do I do that? I am moved by Paul writing in Galatians, which is really the the principle here presented when he says, for I've been crucified with Christ. That's a denying of self, taking up a cross. For I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So Gary, who has followed Christ, trusted Christ, believed on Christ, Gary no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. I am inhabited by the Holy Spirit. I'm a new person when I trusted Christ. This isn't hypothetical. This is what happened in my life at 13. For I've been crucified with Christ, instrument of death. I've denied my life. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, because I'm still, I'm here, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Guys, that's the secret. That's it. It is God living in us. It is not that we need a hand up or we need some help. It is not that we can do better or we can be more moral or we can do better at home or at work or we can simply sleep better or become more prosperous or become more happy. That is not it. It isn't a help us out. It is a we are dead outside of Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The scripture says, as we know, for the wages of sin is... But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So at the core of the gospel, this is, this is the news. We talked about it last week as we talked about evangelism. This is the news. I no longer live. I deny myself. I die to myself. Jesus lives in me. It sounds almost like some sort of construction or fabrication of, of positive thinking. It is not. It's not positive thinking. It's presence reality. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And it's really the, not the dirty secret, it's the bright shining secret of the church that so many of us get confused. It's not about doing better or being good. It's about being dead and then becoming alive. And then there is a strategy that God has for propagating the kingdom, and that is evangelism, which is enclosed within discipleship. It's making disciples who make disciples. And the starting point of that is last week in topic, which was evangelism, is telling our story and giving the gospel out. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. And that covers all of us. So that's evangelism. Today, discipleship, it's following Jesus. How do we do that? If you've got your Bible still open, I'm going to ask you to flip over uh, to um, 2 Timothy, the second chapter. This passage is read a lot, and there are verses at the conclusion of the passage we've selected this morning that are signature verses to discipleship. Uh, Whenever I hear pastors or I hear people talk about discipling, some of these are verses that they go to when it's about the strategy for how we pour into people's lives, how we teach them to observe all that he's commanded us. 
today believing the Lord's leadership, I'm selected to read from the first chapter, the 13th verse, through the second verse of the second chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 and following. And let me preface this by saying this is Paul writing to Timothy who he is discipling. It's a young protege. And he's telling Timothy, this is a second letter and it's possibly a third letter, but it's a second letter as we understand this, uh, this construction or a Bible of these words. And he's saying, this is, this is who I am, Timothy, and this is who you're to be. And he says, what you've heard from me Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. May I stop just a moment? Parenthetically, that's what I just said when I quoted Galatians 2.20. He lives in us. That is the good news. I mean, he saves us also the good news, the gospel, but he lives in us. He empowers us. Then Paul continues in our verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, When he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. There's a personal note there that really locks in for our study of where Paul was in prison in the writing of this letter to encourage and instruct Timothy. And then these words, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop there for a moment. I'm going to do a parenthetical moment. I've done this before here at East Haven. Uh, and I use this illustration, I am sure. Uh, so I'm driving in. I missed the exit this morning. If I'd gotten pulled over for speeding, not that I was speeding. Because I'm a man under authority. I would never speed, just 70 miles an hour. And then they got run over by people also driving the speed limit at about 95. But that's another story. If I were speeding and I got pulled over and I received a ticket, that would be justice receiving what I deserve. If the highway patrolman was kind and said, but you're going to church and you missed the exit, I'm not going to give you a ticket today, and he removed the consequence of my speeding, that would be mercy, not getting what I deserve. And then if he pulled out a $20 bill and offered to buy me breakfast, that would be a miraculous expression of grace. Like, that's not going to happen. But that's grace. It would be receiving something I don't deserve. And at the core of the gospel is this grace. It's the grace that says, you have life in Christ. He's rescued you. He loves you just because he loves you, even though you don't deserve it. Paul writes Timothy, and he says, Timothy, and he says, then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And remember, he's just said it's about the Holy Spirit in you. And then these words about propagating the gospel, about discipling, about teaching to obey. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. 
So there's a commandment, there's an affirmation that Paul makes to Timothy, his protege, and he is saying, the Holy Spirit's going to live inside of you. You be strong in that grace, and then you find other men who will be faithful to pass that along. That's discipleship. That is making disciples who make disciples. Now, we could fall into the thoughts that are many about who is qualified, how that happens, what he's to communicate, and the structure and strategies, which we'll just touch on in a minute. But the key point is this. The church is called to make disciples. If your Bible's still open, I want you to backtrack to the familiar passage found at the end of Matthew. Matthew 28. It's the Great Commission. Matthew 28, we'll just read from verse uh, 16 on. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, I've heard preachers preach entire messages on some doubted. That is the nature of man right there. They saw Jesus post-resurrection. They're on the mountain. They're receiving final uh, words of obedience and commission. Some doubted. It happens. Then Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the great commission. It's the great commissioning. It's the great mission giving on purpose because Jesus summarizes to those who follow him what their job is to be. Now, There is nothing wrong, certainly, with having high moral character, with having a great work ethic, with being kind or exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, but our job isn't simply to be sweet, kind, gentle, patient people. Our job is to make disciples, and our character will reflect the work of the Holy Spirit within us the fruit of the Spirit, to be sure, but that's not ultimately our job. Our job as the church is to make disciples. It's not to gather and talk about making disciples, even though that, in a sense, is what we're doing this morning. That's not really our job. The job's not to consider what a disciple is. The job is not to make notes about how we're to communicate Uh, deep spiritual truths. The the job is not to understand more of some Old Testament passages and, and genealogies. That's not fundamentally our job. All those things are profitable, but that's not fundamentally our job. Our job is to go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that he's commanded us. It is a disciple making mandate that we have as the church. And generally, and I'm not fussing at you, I'm taking responsibility for me. Generally, we have, we have sort of traded that out for why don't we get together and just talk about Jesus once in a while? Why don't we get together and, and bring some songs that would set correctly our mind's attention and our heart's affection on him? That's a good thing. 
It is an important thing. It's worship. It is the, it is the spiritual, reasonable response of our hearts to him, but it's not really our job. Our job, if you will, what we're supposed to be giving our life to isn't our vocation, and that is an honorable thing. We work because work is honorable, and it's part of God's economy and plan for his people. But we don't, go to the, we don't go to the shop, the store, the school, wherever it is that we work. We don't go there because that's ultimately what God's called us to do. Ultimately, our job is to make disciples. Our churches could not hold the people who would respond if we were making disciples. But we've, just keeping it real, real here today, we have swapped that out for a kind of a semi-crusade evangelism, come to the front, one guy presents the gospel, 400 people sit and watch the presentation of the gospel, and then we hope somebody responds to Jesus. I mean, that's kind of what we've done in our culture, but that's not our job. Our job is individually, whoever you are, whatever season, if you belong to Jesus, your job is to make disciples. Can I say that again? Your job is actually to make disciples. It's not to watch the pastor make disciples. It's not to create a system and a structure within the walls of this building to make disciples. It's actually your job to make disciples. How are you doing with it? I'll wait. How are you doing with that? Because the truth is most of us, me, you, most of the time not doing so well. I mean, we're sweet people and community events are awesome and we can do a cookout at Vacation Bible School is incredible. And our Sunday school classes are learning some good stuff. But how are you doing about making disciples? Right now in this room, if there are 309 and a half people, whatever we are, about 300 of you are thinking, I, I could never do that. You may not be saying that sentence. You're just removing yourself from the equation. Gary, I'm not really a disciple maker. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to serve. And, and no doubt you are. But our job is to make disciples. And that doesn't mean everybody is a teacher. Not everybody's going to uh, assume to teach for which there is a high calling in Scripture. There just is. Not everybody is going to be a Sunday school teacher or a small group teacher on Sunday night. And not everybody's going to disciple the junior high and high school students. Or I, We're not all going to do that, but we're all called to it. So what do we do with that? It's really not as complicated as we think. There are a number of models that are time-tested, biblically aligned, with strategies and structures for discipling. Um, and for some of us, the discipleship begins literally in our home. If you're a parent, hear me. Your job is not really to provide a college education or even a high school education or a car or a cell phone or even provision and protection. Your job really is to teach the children in your home who and what to love, and that is Jesus with all of their heart. It's Deuteronomy 6. What are some structures and strategies for discipleship? You see on the sheet that you may have picked up on the way in or received, uh, here's the first one is families. 
Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Impress these things that I've commanded you on your children. Talk about them when you go out and when you come in and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them on your foreheads and on your door frames. What does that mean? It means in every area of your life you talk about your love for God and how they should love him too. And I will be a repetitive preacher about the Shema and about this mandate because we've missed it. We cannot give away what we don't have. We replicate or duplicate who we are. We teach what we know. It's discipleship in the family. Somebody has said it may be uh, more important not who you've discipled outside of your home as much as it is who you've raised. And we teach our children to love the things that we love. That's why Ole Miss signs are in Ole Miss yards. And cowbells are carried by eight-year-olds on a Saturday why? Because they love the things mom and daddy love. That's, that's part of our job. Family is a structure for discipleship. But you've got to have it to give it away. It's teaching them to observe leader-led disciple-making. Uh, for Robert Mullins, in the eighth grade, uh, we walked in probably 10th grade when we walked through Master Life together. It was a leader-led disciple-making effort. There was a system to that, and Master Life, which is what that little system was called 35 years ago, uh, was, not, was not the composite of God's Word, but it was a system that, that called from God's Word some key values and scriptures and truth so that we would have a form, a system, a plan to disciple. Leader-led can be a large group of people. In a real sense, but overestimated, but in a real sense, this would be a discipleship moment today, leader-led. And when you have a pastor, that'll be a leader to some discipleship moments. But it's not really finding faithful men who are able to teach others also in the sense of teaching them to obey. It's really communicating truth and content. But a leader-led discipleship moment is might be a group that's intentional about saying, how do we walk out this faith in Christ that we profess? Triads is a word that I, I use, others have used. A triad sometimes is a leader in two other people, or sometimes a leader in three people. That would be the triad. And it's a small group. It's modeled much like Jesus and Peter and James and John in the sense that they're the 12, there's the 3, there's the 40, there's the 200. If you're familiar with the New Testament, there are groupings of people that Jesus engaged with at different times in different ways. And there is something about having three people together as opposed to two. And there's something certainly about three people with a leader that is different in dynamic than it is just to be alone one-on-one. If you've ever had a, a luncheon or a dinner party and there's just two or three of you there, the conversation moves in a different way than it does when there's three or four. 
And certainly one-on-one is different than one-on-two. It's just a different dynamic. Sociologists would describe that and communications experts in a number of ways. But there's a biblical picture of that where uh, there is a synergy that happens when there's more than just two of us together. But it's less than a, less than a crowd. It's more intimate and more personal. And because of that, there's more accountability. Transformational one-on-one. I will not ask this morning, but I'm tempted to. How many of you have had a one-on-one intentional discipleship relationship? Don't raise your hands. When I've been in forums where I've asked that question, typically of pastors or student pastors or ministry professionals, it is a smattering of people in the room. So if there are 300 people in the room and I were to ask, uh, particularly two or three decades ago, how many of you have had a one-on-one intentional discipleship relationship? Out of 300, there might have been 15 or 20, maybe 5% of the room. Why is that? Because we don't have that structure typically in our churches. One-on-one, though, is a very effective way to disciple, but it is very intentional. It is time-consuming, and it is Paul saying to Timothy, you need to find faithful men who can teach others. It's finding a faithful man. It's a one-on-one relationship, and it's a golden dynamic of discipleship, but it is labor-intensive, high accountability, but it's life-changing. When you walk in the life of somebody who knows Jesus, and they're helping you deal with God's Word and apply it to your life, and they're asking the deep questions about your thought life and about your actions and about your relationships and about your marriage and about your time alone with God and about where you're serving, when those one-on-one questions come, it is as iron sharpens iron to use the biblical picture. It is a sharpening. It's a one-on-one relationship. I'm 65. Most of my friends did not ever have that. I really didn't either. I had a kind of a one on two or three. I had some peers who were following Jesus. I had some people who were seasons beyond me who invested in me. But I didn't have a very intentional every week meet and talk about the deep things of your life one-on-one relationship. But when I've done it with others because I've been really convicted about that, it has been really the golden strategy of helping others follow Jesus. It's transformational one-on-one relationship. And then coaching. Uh, When I left my executive pastor position at Broadmoor four and a half years ago, I I sort of hung out a shingle. I, I built a website and And I said, coaching, speaking, and consulting. And I've gotten to do that for the last four years. And I've had some really neat opportunities. Uh, Currently, I'm coaching two education area PhDs uh, about culture and their leadership and conflict management and crafting their communication. I'm helping them. I'm coaching. And coaching can be a discipleship model. Coaching is not simply about content. It really is, how are you walking out in this area and how can I help you? It's done a lot of different ways, but by asking great questions. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've got somebody in your life who will ask great questions of you, that is a treasure. They'll ask you, so what do you think about? How are you doing? What have you found to be effective? Tell me about your prayer life. What have you found effective in your prayer life? 
you don't have an answer, that's telling. If they say in a relationship of coaching, okay, let me help you with your prayer life. Tell me what's working for you. And then what do you think about, and they make some suggestions. It's like a coach. It's a coach who sees uh, maybe an athlete who's not making the play. They're not making the turn. They're not executing well. And the coach says, hey, let's work on this fundamental till we get this. And then let's move up beyond that. That's coaching. And you can be coached in your walk with Jesus by those who, who know and who do and who see and who ask great questions and bring skills to play. Mentor. Mentor is really a discipleship strategy that may not be as intentional as every Tuesday morning or every Sunday afternoon or uh, once a month. But a mentor can be somebody who speaks into your life because they believe in you. They're available to you because they want to model what it means to hold fast, to hold strong to the grace of Jesus. So they mentor you by saying, in essence, watch me as I follow Christ, to quote Paul. A mentor doesn't necessarily communicate great content as much as they provide great example. I'm looking at you, East Haven. In this room, there should be 40 or 50 people who intentionally choose somebody to mentor. You don't have to use mentor and mentee language. Let me just go ahead and give you a little uh, insight. You find somebody and say, I'll just use my wife's name. Uh, Well, let's not use my, let's use my son's name, Josh. And I'm not talking about father-son relationships, but to use his name, you find somebody who you see following and trusting Jesus. And as a mentor, you say, hey, Josh, I've noticed you're here all the time. You seem to be really engaged. Um, You're serving as an adult, or maybe it's a young person. I see you have evidence of some sort of thirst for Jesus, and you're interested, and I see you carry your Bible. Uh, Josh, I just want you to know that I like you, and I want to be available to you, and I'd like to invest in you. And I want to invite you to look at my life imperfect. Uh, I'm, I'm learning. Jesus is working on me too. But I'm a couple of seasons beyond you. And I would like to mentor you, Josh. It doesn't have to be very official. And we don't have to have a lot of meetings or anything. I just want you to know that I believe in you. And I want to be available to you. I am cheering you on. Some of you right now, can you imagine what that would have been like when you were 14 years old or 17 years old or as a young man or a young lady to have somebody in a season two or three seasons beyond you say, I believe in you and I am cheering you on. I'm walking with Jesus and he's working on me. He is conforming me to the image of Christ every day. I don't get it right some days, but I want to invite you into my life and I want to invest in a way that you can follow. I have kind of a, it's kind of sarcastic sounding. I don't mean it that way. It sounded sort of snarky years ago, but it was how ineffective the church is about so many things. And we are so, we, the, I love the church and we are great about a lot of things, but we really don't typically put people into play in significant kingdom ways and roles very well. 
So I said, this was kind of the snarky comment one time to a, to a guy on staff with me. I said, you know, it's amazing that we'll have the president of an insurance agency and the president of a bank and a guy who owns his own business and a lady who's got a doctorate who's teaching over here and some very capable uh, school teachers and principals and we have uh, folks who are doctors and and well-educated and they love Jesus. And the best we can do to put them into leadership is handing out the bulletin on Sunday morning. Captains of industry, and we haven't captured their imagination and attention and mobilized them with a compelling vision to disciple others. So I want to just say that out loud. I don't know what that means here specifically to any of you, but I want to say to you, there is a bigger mandate and commission on your life than handing out the bulletin. And handing out the bulletin is honorable and helpful, and it's a great place For any of us to serve, none too good for any of these roles. But many of you could be mentoring or one-on-one doing transformational discipleship or have a triad of three or four people or be teaching where you're not teaching currently. You have stuff you can do because that's God's job for you and me. It is to make disciples, to make disciples. I really like David Platt. He's pretty intense. I've met David on more than one occasion. I've got great friends who work at Brook Hills where David was the pastor uh, through those years that he wrote um, uh, the first two of his books that were so revolutionary. I like David. David has uh, a strong, passionate view about discipleship that, well, it, it informs and inspires me. I want to give you four thoughts from David Platt crediting him. These are great thoughts. Right out of the great commission that we read a moment ago, we are to, number one, we're to share the word. We talked about that last week in evangelism. We're to share the word. We're to speak the gospel. And I said it last week, but for those of you who weren't here, at least I believe I said it last week, um, there's a line that says, wherever you go, uh, share the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? That's a great line. It's been ascribed to several people, St. Francis of Assisi and others. Uh, I think it's a little short-sighted. That's like wherever you go, feed people, and if necessary, use food. You've got to use words. That's the nature of the gospel. We've got to get to that point. We share. That's the beginning of disciple-making. We show the word. We do that when we baptize. There is a public expression that identifies with Jesus. And the biblical model, we call it an ordinance in Baptist life, is baptism. And the symbolism of being baptized under the water, I'm buried with Christ, raised to walk in a new life. It's Galatians 2.20, demonstrated in a tangible way that has transcended millennia. It's God's plan to say, I'm dead to myself, I'm denying myself, Luke 9.23, and I'm living to Christ Then Platt says, we teach the word, we teach them to observe. We've talked about that. That is a missing component to discipleship. By the way, it is not teach them everything. It's teach them to observe or to obey. It is a functional, this is how you actually live your life, not get together to talk about how you should live your life. You learn to live your life. And number four, we serve the world. All nations we're commanded to go to with the gospel and make disciples. You know how many people groups 
are identified in the world? 11,000 people groups. Tribes, tongues, dialects, sequestered tribes, 11,000 people groups. Did you know that 6,000 of those 11,000 are without the gospel? 6,000. They don't have not only the written gospel, they haven't been served yet with the gospel. That's really hard for me to get my head around, but those, those numbers play out. I know some stories. Phil Reeves, uh, 30 years ago, showed up at the church that I planted and pastored. Phil was an attorney by training, an oil and gas attorney. Uh, Phil left that law firm and began a construction business. He's super talented. He's a hero. Phil's phenomenal. Phil went on his first mission trip as an adult after leaving the law profession in his mid-30s. We went to Mexico. Uh, Phil did some work and presented the gospel and loved people and built a, a structure for a small church outside of Matamoros. And Phil came back and signed up for the next opportunity, and it changed Phil's life. Phil got outside of himself, and he gives this powerful testimony about recognizing the necessity of a response to the Great Commission. So Phil Reeves finds himself selecting prayerfully an unreached, unengaged people group in Africa. This was about seven years ago. Phil and three other men from Broadmoor go to Tanzania. I'm not sure I can find Tanzania on the map. Can I get an amen? I mean, I know it's over there. East side of Africa, Phil goes to Tanzania. And he lands, and then he takes a small plane, and he lands again, and they've rented a truck. And these three men and Phil drive to an unreached, unengaged with the gospel people group. And when they arrive, they make friends. They find a person of peace, somebody who they can uh, engage and has a smattering of language. They have a translator for a tongue for this tribe that's close to something else. And they engage. And the first trip over, Phil prays with a man to receive Christ. He's clear with the gospel. Five trips over later, the chief, the person who had been what we would probably call a witch doctor, shaman, and several others have come to Christ and they're building a structure for them to meet in and they're translating portions of God's word into their language and teaching people who didn't have a written language how to read the truth of God's word. Six thousand tribes like this tribe in Tanzania, unengaged. But I would say, on your behalf, but I live in Brookhaven, and I'm probably not going to Tanzania or Papua New Guinea or uh, some remote province in the interior of China. I'm, I'm probably not, I, I, I'm probably not doing that. No, but you can mentor a 17-year-old or a young mother You can share the gospel intentionally in a transformational one-on-one relationship. 
you can believe in somebody, cheer somebody on, intercede for them and pray for them. People, we can do this. This is our job. It's to make disciples who make disciples. That's the measuring stick. It's not church attendance. It's not income. All those things are great. It's not how many buildings we have. It's not how well our kids do. It is do we make disciples who make disciples. Now, if you're a little unsettled by this, me too, we're not good at this. We're good at meetings and structures and events. But I am looking over you, and I will not be with you but for a season, just a short season we pray as, as you find a pastor. But I'm just confessing for me, for you, we're not great at making disciples. But everybody in here has a mandate. We've got a job to do. Let's find some ways to do that. If you don't know how, just find somebody, intercede to the Father on their behalf, cheer them on and encourage them. We need to be about disciple making. The starting point, I'm looking around the room. You know, lots of Sundays are somebody's first Sunday at East Haven. Occasionally, a Sunday might be somebody's first Sunday in a long time or almost forever at a church that hears the gospel. So today I want to be clear. The gospel is this. God created you and he loves you. The Bible says that uh, in that we are yet sinners, Christ loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that's Jesus, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Last Sunday night, I began to lead, co-lead, a small group at Pine Lake. My son, Josh, our son, is the worship pastor in Madison. So we have taken over the leadership with another couple of a small group of adults. They're in their 50s and 60s. And my co-leader, I had never met. Uh, They were on vacation the week before when we all gathered for a meeting. So I met them. I mean, I've laid eyes on him the first time during the meeting. And his name is Gil Kim. He's Korean. When he was a young father, had no concept of the gospel whatsoever, his three-year-old went to daycare and got invited to Sunday school. And this three, almost four-year-old went to Sunday school and came home one day and looked at this man who is a, now a retired 65-year-old electrical engineer. And this nearly four-year-old son of this Korean engineer said, Daddy, I learned today that God loves the world and he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. And Gil sat next to me last Sunday night and said, that was absolutely the turning point of my life. When I recognized that God loved me and gave a son for me that I could have eternal life. Today I want to be clear, that might be your turning point too, that God loves you and gave his life for you, his son for you, that you could have eternal life. Most of this room are people who have trusted Christ. They're believers, they're followers. But that might be a brand new message for you. Or today might be the day after many years where you surrender. Say, God, I trust you. You gave your life of your son for me. I will give my life back to you. It is that great transaction, his life for ours. 
you trust Christ, you want to know more about that, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to come to the front. I'll join you here. Brother Phil's here. We'll, we'll find a way to pray with you, find the answers you need. If you're looking for a church, a place uh, where believers gather and love each other and love the Lord and do the things that God's called us to do, I can't think of a better place than East Haven. It's incredible here. And uh, this church would be thrilled to welcome you if you want to align here at East Haven to do the work of God. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to sing together. And I would encourage you to make a bold move if God's led you to this place or if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I am grateful for your grace. I'm grateful for the word of God that tells us even as Paul told Timothy to be strong in that grace. God, I'm thankful that the gospel is so clear that you created us, you love us, that we're sinners apart from you, that we need saving. I'm grateful that the gospel uh, is the truth of how Jesus loves us and died on the cross for us. Father, I pray if there's a young person, older person, any season of life in this room who's not trusted you, that today would be that day that they would surrender their life to you fully. And I pray if there's an individual or a couple or a family today who need to come and unite with this part of the body of Christ, that they would have the courage, the boldness to step out and do that. This is, Father, such a great place of people who love you. Thank you for the worship that we've shared together, pointed to you, to honor you, to bless you. Thank you for the truth of your word that you've given us a mandate, a reason that we exist. And a part of that is to make disciples. Help us to consider how we can be more engaged in the truth of your word and the obedience in your kingdom. We love you, God. I pray you'd give your grace and mercy to our time together during this time of invitation. And I pray this the only way I can in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you stand, please?